Yeah, thanks very much. Um, yeah, you wouldn't want me talking about meta-analysis um, because I'm, I'm not, it's not one of my strong points. But, you know, hey, this is the pre-dinner talk, so it's, it's not supposed to be core. Um, and it certainly won't come up in your assignment or anything like that. This is a talk I gave um, a couple of years ago, actually, at Evidence Live. Um, and it's based on um, a little encounter I had with the concrete um, on my bike. But uh, it... it I've used it to illustrate actually a paper that I've just finished. I just sent it off to the Journal of Evaluation and Clinical Practice this week um, about guidelines, evidence-based guidelines, and why we need to think about them. I'm, you know, I'm a great fan of EBM. In fact, I'm only alive because of EBM, but that is a different, a completely different talk. Anyway, so I started off Oh, years ago, I mean, about 2013, having this argument with Carl Hennigan um, on Twitter. Who, do you, who follows me on Twitter? Yeah, I thought you were. <laughs> okay. Um, and I decided we needed a campaign for real EBM. And I put together this hashtag, real EBM, hashtag real EBM and hashtag rubbish EBM. Because there are an awful lot of people on, a lot of people on Twitter who think they're applying EBM, but they're not. They're being stupid. And that's what I called hashtag rubbish EBM. So I then got invited to speak at Evidence Live about the difference between real EBM and rubbish EBM and what was real EBM and what was rubbish EBM. And it was like you've distorted what I meant. So what I was trying to say was that the key question isn't is EBM real or is EBM rubbish, which is the way they framed it. Are you for or against EBM? That's not the thing. It's when you've got a particular patient in front of you, is the management that you're offering them, is it an appropriate that is real or inappropriate that is rubbish application of the principles of EBM? Because you know what these EBM people like? They get really pompous. Oh, I'm giving you EBM. Well, hang on a minute, but you're not, you're giving me rubbish EBM. So that's what the talk's about. All right. Okay, so the big issue in this, um, I think, and I'm not alone in this, is the lack of individualization or, the, or inadequate individualization. So look, you come from meta-analysis. Um, you, you, you know, you're really, really good at the crunching the numbers and producing the little black diamond in the bottom right-hand corner and saying this is the population average. Um, but actually, the person in front of you is one data point in, you know, a meta-analysis that might have, I don't know, 3,000 um, individual participants in it. Um, and you know that that individual in front of you represents the average. Well, of course, mostly they don't. So Mark Tonelli, who I actually met recently, um, back in 1999, so nearly 20 years ago, he was talking about the individuality of patients being devalued in the practice of EBM. Um, the focus of clinical practice, if we're not careful, is shifted away from the care of individuals and towards the care of populations. In other words, everyone gets the average. Um, the complex nature of sound clinical judgment is not fully appreciated. Who's a clinician here? Oh, great, lots of you. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. This, this will be dead easy then. Um, so, in my view, I think there have been three phases in EBM's epistemological claims. In other words, its own claims about what it's about. The first 
phase was epidemiological evidence. In other words, um, epidemiological evidence kind of trumped intuition and clinical judgment. You had to get away from intuition, get away from clinical judgment, and just have this pure, wonderful, beautiful epidemiological truth. And that was the early years, and that didn't last long. Um, we then had uh, Dave Sackett coming back uh, and saying, no, no, you need clinical judgment. You need to interweave um, your EBM and your clinical judgment. In fact, EBM is, is both of these, um, and the patient perspective. But he didn't really get into how you were going to integrate it because he was an epidemiologist. He didn't know about all the other stuff. Uh, and then, now what you've got, certainly in Oxford at the moment, is this precision medicine, this individualization of epidemiology via this sort of stratification, perspective defining of subgroups. And the more you look at the last one, um, the more you realise they haven't got there yet. So I think we're still mostly in phase two, where what we've got is somehow the need to combine epidemiological evidence, clinical judgment, and the patient perspective. So they all talk about that. That's, that's, what you, that's the mantra. Um, but what happens? Um, yeah, all right. Well, epidemiological evidence, you've got You've got your trials, you've got your observational data, all that kind of thing. Then you've got, what's clinical judgment? Well, you could say it's a combination of tacit knowledge, that sort of embodied knowledge that we pick up over the years. You know, the, the stuff that my son, who's only just qualified as a doctor, hasn't yet got. Um, tacit knowledge, practical wisdom, uh, and um, what John Gabay called mind lines, the sort of shared assumptions and approaches and perspectives that you get in what they call a community of practice. A whole lot of you sit around and share stories and through those stories you're, you're, you're really exchanging practical wisdom. So the mind line, uh, I, I study mind lines, I love mind lines actually. And then yeah all right if we're going to do it properly we've got to incorporate the patient's perspective and the you know the um, social psychologist will say you've got to do that through active listening uh, and shared decision making. Uh, and there's lots and lots in the literature on all that. Well, that sounds great, doesn't it? Sounds absolutely great. Now, let's go back to Dave Sackett, um, you know, one of the founding fathers of EBM. This is what he said uh, in Oxford when on that very first EBM course that I went on in 1995, um, he said, look, when you're looking at the results of a trial, same results of a, of a systematic review, were the patients in this trial sufficiently similar to the patient in front of me, this individual, in whatever key respects, that I can safely apply the findings in this case? And, and he added, if not, piss on it. You know, it's, <laughs> that, was, that was Sackett's words. It's, it's a very subjective judgment, really, isn't it? Because you, you think, okay, well, uh, you know, as my husband said the other day, you, I know you've found a randomised controlled trial, but that is not going to apply to my mother. And, and then you think, no, no, it's not. And it's not so much that you, you've read the trial in detail, but you know the mother-in-law in detail. It's just not going to apply for whatever reason. So... Old-fashioned clinical method, because I'm old enough to have practiced medicine before EBM was invented, or at least before it came over to this side of the, um, of, of the ocean. The question we need to ask, and I'll come back to this question, what do I know about this patient, the patient in front of me, her history, findings from the examination, the test results, how this patient reacted the last time she took the drug, family circumstances, given all that, 
what evidence do I now need? Um, this is patient-based evidence. Uh, it's not just patient preferences. It's not just, you know, the little tick boxes in the shared decision-making form. It's the totality of what's going on with this patient. And even if the patient's unconscious, you can gather an awful lot of data about that patient. I don't think we use this enough. So um, there's lots of background to this in terms of the evidence base on clinical judgment. And there's a couple of papers that I really like. Um, these are just two. Uh, the process of interpretation uh, in, in clinical method. I mean, these are not things that you get given uh, as a as a student of EBM, and I think you should. Here's some more. Um, narrative, the whole, I wrote this, must be 20 years ago that was published. Narrative-based medicine in an evidence-based world is in the British Medical Journal. How do we combine the rich narrative of what the patient is experiencing with the evidence that we get from critically appraised RCTs and systematic reviews? Okay, so this is a Vindengebretsen's um, philosophical paper published quite recently and, and, and based on the philosopher called Lonergan, who I'd never heard of before I, I read this paper. So he asked the question, well, what do we mean by knowing? What do we mean by that, you know, clinical knowing? So he says the first thing we need to do is collect sensations and observations, taking the patient's pulse, whatever it might be, uh, something that calls for explanation. First thing you do, you know, take a history, examine the patient, data. We then go into a phase of interpreting those data, asking the question, what could this be? Uh, and you've all been there, or most of you've been there as clinicians, you know, the patient comes in with a pile of symptoms, you take a look, uh, and you think, well, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this. Once you've interpreted those, you've reached some level of understanding. The next phase is weighing up those competing experts. It's, it's actually less likely to be that because she's this kind of patient. It's more likely to be that because of what I found. And that means you're, you're now making a judgment. But then the interesting, uh, the most interesting phase here is choosing how to act. What's the right thing to do? The morally right thing, because actually medicine's not a science. Medicine's not an art. Medicine is a moral practice, case-based reasoning, Aristotle. Every patient that we see, we are making a moral choice about what is the best thing to do with this lady or this gentleman in these particular circumstances. Um, the example I was used with that is I remember a woman came to me once, um, very late on a Friday night, um, and she was in the right old state and she was, you know, all sort of flustered and all the rest of it. Um, and she wanted me to fit her with an intrauterine contraceptive device. And she got it from the chemist and she brought it along. Um, and she'd got the three kids sitting in the waiting room. And she said, well, can you fit this right now? So I said, well, we've got to go through all the pros and cons and all that kind of thing. She said, I haven't got time for that. You know, I've got to pick up my fourth child from something. Uh, and we went through this. And I, I, in the end, I said, look, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to fit that right now. I want, I want you to come back and I'll make a special appointment on Monday or whatever. Now, the reason why I'm giving you that example is actually I didn't think that, that 
in that rush with the kids outside, with the woman in state she was in, having not engaged with the pros and cons, I felt it was not morally right to agree to fit this device because of the risks and all that kind of thing. In other words, it's not just a science. It's a, it's a judge, a contextual judgment. You get the idea. Really, really important. Okay, that wasn't what I was going to tell you about. I was going to tell you about falling off my bike. So those of you who've been following me on Twitter for a while um, will know that a few years ago, actually it was nearly four years ago, um, that was what I tweeted Bad bike smash in the hospital, two broken arms, on today's trauma list, thanks to kind bystanders and NHS. Sorry, we'll be out of action until further notice. Um, yeah, it was horrible, really horrible bike smash. And, and, and uh, what had happened was I um, was cycling along uh, on the canal, actually, in London. It was, it was a bright, sunny day, and I was going along on a concrete, and something got caught in my wheel. I used to be a good cyclist. You know, I was going on whiz, 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 whiz in my lycra and clipped into the pedals. And the whole bike suddenly flipped up in the air and came smashing down on the concrete. Well, actually, I came down with arms over my head, smack, smack, you know, compound fractures, all the rest of it. It wasn't very nice. There we are. Um, that kind of thing. Plenty of that. Uh, and there I am with both arms in, in temporary slings. Um, and then a week later, there I am playing with the putty, and a month later, I'm feeling quite a lot better. So that was a, a whiz through what had uh, apparently happened when I came off my bike. So look, here's the patient narrative. I was riding the bike along the towpath, going about 20 miles an hour, something got caught in the wheel, bike somersaulted, blah, blah, blah. I was very dazed, wasn't knocked out. Both arms deformed and useless, really bad, nasty. Fingers were numb. All my fingers immediately numb. Couldn't feel them properly. Um, and my helmet was split. It's funny, isn't it? When you come down in your arms, how did I split my helmet? Because I bounced, landed on my head on the second bounce. What got written in the notes was, 55-year-old um, female fell off bike. Now, Actually, on the day I came off the bike, I was only 54. But by the time the ward round had come round the next day, um, I was in the denominator population for falls prevention. Um, so a nice lady in a white coat with a clipboard, who was a falls prevention coordinator, came along to my hospital bed. And the first question she asked was, can you hear me? actually that's how you start when you're doing falls prevention in the over 55s um, now can you see these let me see if I can read them I can't, I can't read them on there but maybe I can read them on here do you take four or more prescription medicines um, do you ever feel dizzy you know do you um, deafness they asked about has it been more than two years since you had an eye exam? Blah -de blah. Okay, so you can see the narrative here. The rich patient narrative is not mapping onto the falls-free plan. All right, let's let's just keep going now with the objective summary um, of what happened to me. Well, over the next four months, I had seven operations on my arms, put the bones back in to put metal in, take metal out 
take out a chunk of one bone because they reckon that the reason why my fingers are still numb, oh, you, you must have a distorted ulna or whatever. Um, still going in with my numb fingers. Uh, well, look, you broke your arms. What do you expect? Six months and I've got um, quite marked wasting, heaviness, clumsiness in my hands and long track signs in my legs. means something squashed, so I had an MRI scan and three crush fractures and um, severe disc prolapse. Uh, so I went along to a different orthopaedic surgeon who was very good at replacing bits and bobs in your neck and gave me two titanium discs. Went very well. Now, here we go. Here's a nice guideline on selection of adults for imaging of the cervical spine. Adults presenting who have sustained a head injury. Well, I definitely sustained a helmet injury. I'd got a split helmet, um, but the obvious injuries were elsewhere. Um, interesting guideline here. I want you to have a look at this. I, by the way, I'm not really complaining about the doctors who did this. You know, I mean, it's, that's not the point. The point is, this is a mistake that we could all make. Um, the guideline isn't going to personalise your management. So you can say, well, dangerous mechanism of injury, fall from greater than one metre. Was it a fall? It's kind of flip from greater, because I went up in the air and down. Um, ejection from a motor vehicle. Um, it wasn't motorised, but it was pretty ejected. Do you see what you, you, you... It takes a bit of judgement to think, well, it, it does this guideline actually apply? Does the letter of the guideline apply? Bicycle collision. Well, the bicycle didn't collide with anything. It just all went up in the air. I mean, I collided with the ground. So technically, it doesn't quite fit. But of course, if you look at that and you think, oh, yeah, that's, that's kind of the... It, it fits a bit better than the falls prevention guideline, doesn't it? Which is the one that was applied to me. But nobody thought of this. Um, so... The learning point is pretty obvious and I'm labouring it slightly. But when I was writing it up this week, I thought there must be another, a deeper reason why nobody thought to use this. Because I, I was a pretty serious trauma case. I'd covered in bruises, you know, it wasn't, it, it was clear that this was, you know, whatever. So another thing that I found looking up, the right arm... I'd had what I called at the time, and everybody called at the time, a Collie's fracture. In other words, I fractured the radius and everything impacted so that this arm was much shorter and I had to kind of pull it out under general anaesthetic. And I called it a Collie's fracture until last weekend. And then I realised it wasn't actually a Collie's fracture because a Collie's fracture is the fork handle fracture with the dorsal displacement of the um, distal part of the radius. That's clever, isn't it? I, I, boned up on my orthopaedics. Now, if you break this part of your radius, but you haven't got dorsal displacement, it's not technically a Collie's fracture. And my, I didn't have the dorsal displacement, it was displaced in another direction. The Collie's fracture is the fracture you get when you've got low bone density and it's a fragility fracture and it, the epidemiology is postmenopausal women, um, with not very much trauma, and it goes with broken hips and the POTS fracture and the, you know, all that kind of thing. That's not, that's actually not what I had. I had orthopedically the same kind of fracture that you get in 
younger male athletes aged between 20 and 50 who are doing high impact sports or coming off a horse or something like that. So the, so the epidemiological patterning of that kind of fractured radius goes with people who are doing crazy things to their bodies like doing high impact sports. The name Collie's Fracture shapes your mindset to think this was a fragility fracture, especially since this person is now in the over 55s and isn't male. And I actually think that it was the label Collie's Fracture that flipped them into picking the Falls Prevention Guideline. There's a book by Jeff Bowker and Susan Lee Starr. It's a fascinating book. It's called Sorting Things Out, Classification and Its Consequences. And it actually uses the ICD-10, the International Classification of Diseases, um, as a worked example of, of what happens here. We create these schemes, and then once we've created the schemes, they become totally enshrined in guidelines and protocols, uh, and then they ossify our assumptions and they reproduce our assumptions, and then those assumptions appear to be scientific. Um, and actually, if we go back to personalised medicine, I was interviewing Fiona Powery the other day, who's a professor of um, gastroenterology here, um, and she was saying things like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. We've classified patients into Crohn's and, and UC, but actually, at a molecular level, we ought to be classifying people completely differently in terms of the underlying biochemistry and the underlying genetics of their condition. And what we should be doing is getting rid of these Crohn's and UC. Similarly for asthma and COPD. You talk to Ian Pavord up the, up the hill, you say the same thing. It's, we should be classifying people into eosinophilic wheeze and non-eosinophilic, and then that will determine much better which ones respond to steroids, etc., etc. But you try getting the GPs, for example, to stop using the term asthma. They don't like that at all. It's because of this. It's because these classification schemes have become very enshrined. Similarly, Collie's fracture. Um, okay, let's go on to a different bit of my management. Because um, I was tweeting, saying, hey, guess what, guys, I've found, they've been found to have these, uh, whatever. Um, I'm going to, I'm going off to have a cervical disc replacement. So an awful lot of people, including two professors in my own department, says, you don't need the cervical disc replacement operation. Randomized trials have shown that in cervical disc lesions, the surgical groups didn't do any better than the ones who were conservatively managed. Who's heard that statement? Anyone heard that statement about, about um, cervical disc replacement? We do too many of them. Okay couple of people nodding. But they said that without understanding what had happened. They just said, you're a patient who's going off to have your cervical disc operation. Well, you don't need to do that. And, you know, you're obviously being overmanaged. What do they call it? Overdiagnosis, overtreatment. Um, they hadn't looked at the MRI. They hadn't, etc. All right. That's rubbish EBM. That's what I mean by rubbish EBM. Okay. It's evidence-based, but it's not the, the evidence doesn't apply to this patient. Look, here's a RCT which showed that surgery with physiotherapy resulted in more rapid improvement during the first post-operative year, but by two years they were both the same. So this is the kind of stuff that is influencing people to say stop operating on people's cervical discs. But look at the exclusion criteria. The first one is obvious myelopathy, which I had. 
um, even slight intermittent signs of myelopathy, and a history of neck distortion. So those patients were not in the trial. So don't tell someone who's, you know, met the exclusion criteria that here's the evidence base that applies to you. It doesn't. Uh, also, those patients hadn't previously tried physiotherapy. Come on, I've been doing it for months. John Grimley Evans, written this fantastic paper, many years old, 20 years old now, um, who says this is to use evidence in the manner of the fabled drunkard who searched under the street lamp for his door key because that's where the light was, even though he dropped the key somewhere else. And in fact, the paper that I've written based on this case is called Of Lampposts, Keys and Drunkards, A Tale of Four Guidelines. Anyway, all right, here's the last guideline or non-guideline I want to tell you about, because I've been telling you about three different ones. Like, I was advised by somebody, someone not very senior, I might add, um, not to take non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs for a month after my cervical disc replacement, uh, because, I was told, there's some evidence of delayed healing of, of bone repairs uh, and that the risk of bleeding was higher. So don't take any um, ibuprofen and, you know, naproxen, whatever. Um, so here's my narrative. Should I take non-steroidals? I don't want to bleed. I don't want delayed healing, but I don't want to be in pain. And I hate opiates. So here we go. <laughs> I put it out on Twitter. Nice open-ended question. Um, so the first person who said, well, look, if you're not worried about the evidence of disc replacement in the first place, then why are you worried about the non-steroidal? So they're still giving me a hard time about having the operation. Um, but then this clinician um, says, well, I routinely prescribe them. Really good painkillers, opioids, sparing, get you up and about quickly. So he's not referring to evidence at all. He's referring to his clinical judgment. So I'm thinking, well, should I, should I believe this EBM guy? Should I believe the, you know, the, the, the practitioner? Um, and then this guy's saying, well, you know, for the lumbar discs, oh, yeah, that's fine. But for cervical discs, you know, they could bleed around your airway. So I thought, oh, crack, I could actually die here. You know? <laughs> so I'm a bit concerned. So I started looking up um, the evidence. So the one that comes up, the one that's been cited most, this inhibition of fracture healing, turns out to be 12 rats. 12 rats who they've deliberately smashed, the, you know, broken the legs of. Uh, and then they've, they've given them nostrils. You think, hang on a minute, what were we taught in our EBM? 12 rats. Um, and then there was a, I thought, well, no, I want something in humans. So, you know, you go through the PubMed search and you tick the human box and half the evidence disappears, or actually two thirds of it disappears. Um, so what they had here was 32 patients who had non-union of a broken leg and then they matched them you know in the sort of case control thing and they found that the ones who'd got the non-union were more likely to have taken non-steroids again hang on a minute quality where's the evidence you know that triangle with the evidence hierarchy this is pretty low down is this the best evidence well, there must be a systematic review um so there were, i found two actually i love this um it said animal and in vitro studies present so, such conflicting data that even studies with identical parameters have opposing results. 
I'm saying the, the evidence base is an absolute quagmire. So why are these people confidently putting it out on Twitter? So, and here's another one. Further research is required. Yeah, there, is, there is actually no good evidence one way or the other. Okay, so what do we do? This is a really common situation in clinical practice where you've really tried to help the patient by looking up the evidence and what you've got is evidence that just is, you can't hang your hat on. Um, so I think what the evidence showed, non-steroidals, okay, they inhibit the same kind of prostaglandins that are involved in bone healing. So that's plausible metabolic explanation. Animals show slower healing, but they're not, you know, the, the, the studies are pretty crap. People with delayed healing were more likely to have, have taken them and in randomised trials, post-surgical patients had higher incidence of GI bleeding. Okay, well, of course, of course, anybody who takes a, a non-steroid is going to have a higher incidence of GI bleeding. All right. Now, individualised evidence. This isn't evidence in the textbooks. This is evidence you can get from reading my file or taking history. I um, used to do a lot of sport. Still do quite a lot. I've had years of non-steroids. You take them all the time when you're training because then you, you can train harder. Um, no adverse effects whatsoever. It used to knock back ibuprofen like Smarties. Had a number of stress fractures treated with non-steroidals. Not only did they heal perfectly fine, but if you look in the book, this fracture is supposed to take six weeks. I'd be back running on it after a month. I mean, I was always having them. Non-steroidals didn't, didn't delay healing in me. Okay? I've had adverse reaction to opioids. Um, the surgeon said, look, this is a really difficult... I came round and he said, blimey, it took us six hours to sort your neck out. So I, that was, that's tough. And he described all the stuff he'd been doing to sort me out. And I was in pain. And I'd promised Feed Godly that I was going to write an editorial for the BMJ that week. So I had a really good reason for um, not being knocked off by opioids. Okay, so now we've got a huge amount of evidence here now. Despite the fact that the evidence in the literature is weak and confusing, you don't know which way to go. In this patient, given her history, the clinical picture, the equivocal nature of the evidence, the benefit-harm balance is massively in favour of non-steroidals. We know this patient isn't allergic to them, doesn't react badly to them, especially after the first 24 hours. So I agreed, I wouldn't take them in the first 24 hours, and then I'd take them. Okay, so this is a fairly uncontroversial conclusion, I think, is that when we're practising medicine, nursing, whatever, in the, is the management of this patient's in these circumstances an appropriate, that is real, or an inappropriate, that is rubbish, application of the principles of EBM? And that EBM experts should avoid pulling rank on experienced clinicians by citing irrelevant RCTs out of context, because actually they know I've got an attitude, some of them. Here's a more controversial question, and I think rather more interesting. If we practice patient-focused individualization of the evidence, i.e. if we practice real EBM, we often find that more research isn't needed. We don't need to do any more research. We already know it's pretty flaky and probably will still be flaky. Perhaps the uncertainty in science is inherent. Perhaps it will never get resolved with more RCTs, more meta-analyses, etc. Et Perhaps you wasted your money on coming on this course. No, maybe not. Um, <laughs> Perhaps we need to return to old-fashioned clinical method and use EBM a little bit less comprehensively. Let's go back and get patient-based evidence. All right.
There you go. That's the end of that. I'd love to hear your comments.